Colossians chapter 2, and uh, we're just going to pick up here in verse 15 in just a moment, but want to set the context a uh, little bit of a review here so that we know uh, where we are and what's going on in the book of Galatians. Paul is writing uh, to these churches that were established in the area of Galatia would now be in modern-day Turkey. And, of course, uh, if you know anything about the nation of Turkey and the history of Turkey, uh, they have not been uh, much on the uh, Christian faith or Christian front for for many, many centuries. Uh, uh, Predominantly Muslim country and one of the most uh, violent and uh, 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 domineering countries in history, uh, maintaining the, an empire that stretched over uh, centuries, actually, and, and really did not completely fall apart until after World War I was the Turk-Ottoman Empire, uh, as it was called in history. And uh, yet... It was one of the places where the Apostle Paul started his first churches. And it's in that area, uh, northwestern Turkey, which is Galatia. And Paul is writing them, and he is right now establishing the history of the gospel, the message that he preached unto them. The first thing he told them was, you have everything you need. Uh, One of the... Uh, it just never ceases to amaze me is everybody is looking for something new. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to work on the old. How about that? Uh, told one guy one time, he says, but this is a new program that will really help your church. I said, you don't understand. I said, we're still not fulfilling the old one yet. Uh, I said, once we get that taken care of, we'll call you up and, and we'll see Uh, But the last time I read, it takes a whole lifetime of living to try to fulfill the program that's already in the Bible. We don't need anything new. And so Paul then gives the history uh, how that the gospel was taught to him. His message was taught to him directly by Jesus Christ. This is one of the uh, defining characteristics of an apostle. That's why we do not believe there are any living apostles. There is no need for anyone to receive instruction that isn't already printed in your Bible. This is all that we need. And so as we come through here, Paul says, I wasn't taught it by man. I didn't even go up and spend time with the apostles. And then uh, last week we went through the story of how that Peter came to Antioch after there had been all this dissension with people coming down from Jerusalem. And Paul gets Peter and, and literally dresses him down or rebukes him in front of the entire church there. And we ended last week with that. And, uh, and he says in verse 15, he says, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, you read these verses. How could anyone take their Bible and say, I'm getting to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, having read that verse? I mean, I I just... I hope you're with me tonight. I I don't see how anyone could make that statement when it says so plainly right here that no one, no flesh shall be justified 
by the works of the law. And yet 90% of all religion that calls itself Christian, we're, we're not talking about every cult and ism and schism. We expect them to have a works-based salvation. Uh, of course, the Bible is very clear. You can't be saved by works. And so we expect those that don't believe in Jesus at all, that have never read a Bible, the Buddhist and the Hindus, to have some type of works-based salvation. But when people who call themselves Christians do exactly the same thing, only they got a different list of to-dos. We've been over this. Do you realize they fight wars over their to-do list? People have argued, and I think I've told this story several times of, uh, out on visitation, and, uh, and a fellow, when he found out he was a preacher, he says, well, he says, maybe you can answer this question. He says, the, the Greek Orthodox says you genuflect one way, and we Catholics say you genuflect the other way. And I said, I can solve that problem. He says, really? He says, very simple. I said, making the sign of the cross is not in the Bible. Wait a minute. He, he didn't want to hear that. You see, the Bible has the answers. Amen? And it is not dependent. And Paul is going to hammer this. When our church was first starting, we met several years, about four and a half, five years, in the basement of the Yugoslavian Seventh-day Adventist Church. And I remember years ago, there was a caretaker in the building there. His name was Demetrius. I don't know what a Greek caretaker was in a Yugoslavian Seventh-day Adventist church, but, I mean, I guess it kind of worked. He was just about as nuts as they come. And he sat there. I was teaching through the book of Galatians early in the history of our church. And he sat down. He said, I'm going to sit in on your Bible study tonight. I said, okay. And I got started, and he says, oh, you believe just like we do. I said, hold on to your hats. We haven't, start, we haven't gotten to the meat of it yet. And we started digging into this thing right here and this passage about how that through the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. You see, Ellen G. White, the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist movement, says that just because you're saved by grace does not exclude you from keeping the law. Hence, why they meet on Saturday and not Sunday. I got about ten minutes into this passage, and he was getting mad and upset, and he wasn't going to leave. But when we were, when I was done, he was a, "You don't believe anything like we believe." I said, "I tried to tell you because it's not by the works of the law; it's by faith." Amen. And so, Paul right now is going to, in these verses that we're trying to cover, is he is, he is taking a few moments and giving us a summary or a recap, and, because he's going to go on, when he gets to verse 1 of Galatians chapter 3, he, he launches with invective, Oh, foolish Galatians, he said, don't you have a clue to what's going on. And so this is the basis for this. He says, he he had just rebuked Peter because, Peter, we're Jews, but we're not living like Jews lived since we found Jesus. He said, and now you're trying to tell the Gentiles they need to live like a Jew does in order to be saved. He says, you need to understand something, Peter. Peter. There's only two groups of saved people. There are Jewish people, which at this point in history were the predominant. There were more Jews saved than there were Gentiles for the most part. 
The church at Jerusalem was easily 12, 15,000 members. Now, there were some Greek widows in there. Read Acts chapter 6, but the uh, meaning Gentiles, the, the per, uh, but everybody who was in the church at Jerusalem was culturally a Jew before they got saved. Now we're in a non-Jewish area, and yet what was Paul's prescribed uh, mode of operation is he would go into the synagogue three Sabbath days, he would reason with the Jews because they had the Scriptures. That's why it was Paul could be in places like Berea for only a week or so and leave a church behind. Because there were already people who had studied the Bible. And all they needed to do was put Jesus into it. Faith in Jesus Christ. And so you had this group of believers, and then you had the group of believers who were Gentiles. They had to learn everything... And we talked last week of how that's the difference between the gospel of the circumcision and the gospel of the uncircumcision. It's just how you were raised. And so we come here to verse 16, and he says, Knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith of Jesus Christ. Now, this is not up for debate. This is not something where Paul is saying, now, Peter, you are convinced that a person... No, he says, Peter, you know. You see, this idea of debating truth in the church is an invention of mankind. It's not in the Bible. It is the preaching of God's Word that happens in the church... And as long as it's God's Word being preached, then you need to listen. And if it isn't God's Word being preached, then you need to find a church where God's Word is preached. Amen? It's just that simple and cut and dried. And so, Paul, as he is rebuking Peter, he says, "...knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ." And... What Paul is really saying, and, and, and this answers to a question that many people have asked, and it takes a fairly detailed study of the book of Acts to come up with the answer to this. They say, if the church was so Jewish in its origins, why do the Jewish people, why are they so adamantly opposed to Bible-believing Christians today? Well, it's very simple. Paul said, listen... We had to stop trying to be keepers of the law and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone to be saved. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul said, I've suffered the loss of all things and do count it but dung that I may win Christ. You see, the people who were running the synagogues were connected to the people in Jerusalem who were humanly responsible for the crucifixion of Christ. We understand that Jesus willingly gave himself. But somebody had to accuse him to Pilate. Somebody had to deliver him over. And these religious leaders, the word that is used in your King James Bible is Jews, capital J-E-W-S. And that is for referring to the religious leaders of the day. And Paul says, listen, we had, we could not count on our Jewishness or our understanding of the, uh, of the scriptures or our uh, heritage from Abraham or the fact that we worshiped in Jerusalem at the temple of God. He said, when it came to the issue of salvation, we had to put all these things aside and believe only in Jesus Christ. He said, so why are we going back and trying to strap people with traditions, 
and laws and regulations that we as Jewish people couldn't handle because we understand that it's by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Now, Paul is going to be hinting at where he's going here, but what he's trying to do is sum up this whole thing to this point because what was happening in the churches of Galatia is they had left the truth of the gospel. And if you remember, our theme is Deliverance from this present evil world, from verse 4. A false gospel will not deliver you from this present evil world. A partial gospel or a perverted gospel is not good enough to get you to heaven. You have to have the whole thing. You have to have the right thing. You cannot have part of it or, or a, a portion of it. Uh, and so, we'll, we'll keep moving here. He says, but if while we seek, to, verse 17, but if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin God forbid. Now, what we have Paul doing here is giving us a little bit of reasoning. He says, we understand we're saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by the things we do. He said, but while we are trying to be justified by Christ, we're found sinners. Now, one of the things that has to happen before you can get saved is you've got to get lost. Amen? I mean, the world understands this completely, much more than many people who profess religion. If you are ever part of AA or any of those 12-step programs, what is the first thing they tell you? You introduce yourself, hello, my name's Pete, and I'm an alcoholic. Why? Because until you tell people who you are and what you are, until you recognize your problem... Now, I never did that, okay? Uh, But that's what they do in these meetings. I know, because I've talked to people over the years, and, and, and... The founder of AA put the whole program together for one purpose. So that people who refuse the gospel of Jesus Christ would have some type of apparatus, organization, or or, or program to get them off alcohol and drugs. And I always give this rejoinder. I'm glad for every person that has stop drinking alcohol, gambling, or doing drugs because of one of those 12-step programs. But I want to challenge you, it's not good enough to get to heaven. There'll come a time where you're going to have to get past your 12-step program if you're going to get saved. The point I'm trying to make is even they understand until you admit that you're a, you have problems, you're never going to get help for it. And Paul says, here we are as Jewish people, descendants of Abraham, holders of the truth, the the family that God has chosen out of all the peoples of the earth to bring his word to us. And Jesus Christ was a, a Jewish man. He was born of the line of David. Everything in your Bible is Jewish in nature. And Paul says... As we live in this Jewishness and we try to be justified by Christ instead of the works of the law, he said, we're found sinners. And so then he asked the question, is Christ the minister of sin? 
And the rejoinder is here, God forbid. There are no stronger words that Paul could have chosen to say nothing could be further from the truth. And yet, we have... Uh, how many of you are familiar with the symbol, uh, Eastern symbol, the yin and the yang? Uh, you might have seen that, and uh, the Star Wars thing is all being redone. And, and see, that's all based on Eastern philosophy. See, in the Eastern way of thinking things, in the Eastern mystical way of thinking about things, God can't be good unless there's evil there to show you how good God is. The gods of the Eastern religion have to have evil so that they can be good. Are we together? I mean, you've got to think about this. This is an underlying philosophy to so many things that you hear and see today. This is why our people at the State Department think that they can negotiate with terrorists. Because our world needs both. This is why people like Albert Einstein demanded that our government, once we found out how to make an atomic bomb, to give all the secrets to the Soviets so that there would be a balance of power. These are historical facts. You don't hear them very often because they're not very pleasant. But you see, it was their underlying understanding of God and mankind that you have to have both. And what Paul is saying here is, God does not need evil to be good. God doesn't have to have it. Yet... In the Eastern way of looking at things, you can't have evil and good. It's got, everything's got to balance itself out. God needs no balance. But what do you hear coming from all of our politicians today? We need compromise. We need to work together. You know how you work together with a politician? You only need two words. Yes, sir, or ma'am. You just need one word to compromise with a politician. Yes, to anything you say. That's, that's how you work in, in the field of, of, of politicians. Uh, follow what's going on today. Listen, Paul is striking at this base of this thing that has influenced you, whether you think it has or not. That's why so many people are so afraid of someone standing up with the Bible and thus saith the Lord, and I don't care what you think because this is what the Bible says. You see, they believe that evil and good work together to make good. Now, does that make any sense? It doesn't work that way with anything else. I don't put just a little poison in my drink because I need a little bad to work out with the good. I don't want any poison in my drink. Amen? I don't want any dirt in my food. And so as we look at what Paul is saying here, and and again, this is a difficult passage. You do need to think about it. He said, but if while we seek to be justified with Christ, we we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin. Does God need sin to give us grace? Paul's going to say this in Romans chapter 7 and verse 8. Should we sin? That grace may abound. And again, he's going to use the same expletive, the same uh, 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 emotionally charged words. God forbid. God does not need sin to be good. God is good because he's God. 
Well, then why is there sin? Now, this is going to sound trite and you're going to think I'm being sarcastic, but I am not. A choice that is not a choice is not a choice. Some of you that lived in the Soviet Union know exactly what I'm talking about. You see, in the Soviet Union, you were required to vote. And you could actually vote for the wrong candidate if you wanted to. But there was a goon squad waiting out back that had watched you vote, and they would help you understand that you weren't supposed to vote that way. Uh, that you were supposed to vote the way that they said. And if you refused to uh, adhere and surrender to the will of the, uh, uh, of the people, quote-unquote, then you were punished duly until you either conformed or were dead, one of the two. But that was the ultimate goal. That's not a choice, my friend. God put Adam and Eve in the garden and he gave them a real choice. They could choose to obey God or they could choose to obey themselves. And they illustrated in the Garden of Eden a choice that every one of us in this room that's old enough to make that choice has done. We always choose to serve ourselves. That's why the Bible says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But then there's another choice that you can make. You can choose to bring your sin to Jesus Christ. You can choose to believe that when Jesus Christ said it was finished on the cross, that he actually meant he had paid the price for your sins. You, you have to make a choice to call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to save you. But he does not save people who are not sinners. So in order to find Christ, we don't need sin. We already chose it. We need to understand that our sin breaks God's law. And there's nothing that we can do about it. Except Go to Jesus. That's why man cannot be justified by works. Because if you lived a hundred lives, you can't go back in time and erase the wrong things that you have done. And so Paul goes on to the next verse here, and this one is more confusing when you read the commentaries than the first one we did, 17, 18. He says, For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. Now, what he's simply saying here is, If I go back and admit that I've done something wrong, that my behavior was destructive, that the choices that I made brought destruction in my life and the lives of others, and now I'm trying to make that right, what I'm doing is I'm admitting that I have sinned. I am condemning myself. What do they say in all the mystery movies? The criminal will return to the scene of the crime. Why do they do that? Well, sometimes to gloat in what they've done. Sometimes they feel bad and they want to try to make things right. It doesn't matter what you do, the criminal still condemns himself in his behavior, doesn't he? And that's all Paul's saying here. He's saying, listen, God is not the minister of sin. God does not need sin to operate. He said, I am the one that condemns myself. Verse 19, 
For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. What does the law say? The penalty is death. How many sins do you have to sin to miss heaven? Everybody hold up one finger. Someone said, but that's, that's pretty strict, isn't it? Uh, yes, it's, it's very strict. Well, how come God is so strict? Well, would you stop and think about it? How many sins did Eve sin on the first day? One. How many did Adam do? One. Until the voice of God showed up and then they sinned again trying to cover up the first one. It all started with one sin. And look at the world in which we live today. God's not going to let that happen again. That's why Jesus died on the cross. To take care of sin. And Paul here is trying to help us understand. This is how salvation works. This is how the gospel works. It's not based upon what you do. It's not based upon what you can do. It's based on what Jesus is and what he has done. Uh, God does not need sin to be good, but he saves us from our sin because, again, if we could choose to sin and then not really sin, it's not a choice. God allowed man to make a real choice, knowing that mankind would make the wrong choice. And we can go to many other passages in the Scripture, but He allowed man to make that choice the best of our understanding because he knew there would be some who would turn from their sin and make that choice of their own free will to put their faith in Jesus Christ. God said, I'll put up with the whole mess so that I can take the harvest of those souls down through the ages who would believe in me and we will spend eternity together. No man has ever invented a story as good as what's already in your Bible. Can we say amen to that? And so now we get to those verses that are the summary of the whole thing. He said, I through the law am dead to the law that I might live unto God. The The penalty of the law is death. What did Jesus do on the cross? He died. He died on the cross to take the punishment for my sin. And if you're saved, the next two verses should be your life testimony. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. Paul said, I had to escape The penalty of the law. Now, this is what makes Bible Christianity different from every other religion that is out there. How many of you went to a church, Orthodox or or Catholic, before you got saved? Would you just give a testimony to that? And, And so, a lot of us here, a lot of people here tonight raised their hands. Now, what did you do? You went to the priest 
And you confessed your sins to that priest. And then he would give you things that you were supposed to do. Not to take it away, but to make it better. Isn't that true? And if you did those things, you were told that part of your debt to God for your sins would be paid by the fact that you showed up at church, you said so many prayers, you, you and, and fill in the blank, uh, read so many uh, verses from your Bible or said the rosary so many times. Uh, all of these different things that you were supposed to do to take care of your sin. And, and if you pressed any Catholic priest or Orthodox priest who actually forgives sins, they would always say, well, well, you know, really it is God that forgives sins, but we do it in His place. Now, here's the difference. The law says you have sinned. And the penalty for breaking God's law is death. Eternal separation from God. Are we together? Jesus paid that price for every human being that ever lived. If you have any questions about that statement, read Hebrews chapters 9, 10, 11, and 12. Jesus offered himself to pay the price of our sins once and for all. And all God's people said. So, we come here and in verse 19, Paul says, I'm dead through the law. So that I can live unto God. Now, here's how I'm dead through the law. I am crucified with Christ. You see, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, God takes what Jesus did on the cross and puts it on your account. God is perfect in His bookkeeping. Not one sin is left unreconciled. That's why I want these words up here on the, on the back wall. Because when Jesus said, it is finished on the cross, He had paid the price. One old time preacher put it this way, Jesus as the infinite God accomplished In a finite period of time, one day on the cross, what would take every man, woman, and child that have ever lived in human history an eternity in hell to accomplish. I think that's putting it pretty good. You see, it says, I am crucified with Christ. This is how I'm dead to the law. Jesus died in my place. There are stories, both in fiction and supposedly in real life, where someone took the punishment for another human being's sin. And not being uh, wrongly accused, we understand that happens in any human justice system, but we're talking about people who were known to be innocent, willingly Suffering in the place of the person who did the wrong. That's what Jesus did for us. Amen? And so, there's nothing mystical here. It's legal. Jesus was crucified in my place. When I accept His finished work on the cross, God counts His death as mine. The the demands of the law have been met. So now I'm dead to the law. 
Its demand has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, suffering in my place. And so now I'm free from the punishment of the law. It says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. God did not stop my human heart from beating the moment I believed in him. In fact, it's called being born again. It's a brand new life that he has given me. Amen? Yet, when we get saved, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth, what? The Lord Jesus. Now, we'll take just a moment here. I don't want to waste much time on this. We have people who run around screaming about Lordship salvation. And by that, they mean that if Jesus is really your Lord, you don't sin anymore. Well, until I see a Christian that doesn't sin anymore, I'm not going to believe him. How about you? Uh, have nothing to do with that. Then we have the other side running around saying, you don't need to repent of your sin to be saved. Uh, then why did Jesus say, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish? Do you think the idiots clanging the bell on both ends just might be just as wrong as each other? You see, the Bible has the truth. When I confess the Lord Jesus, what am I doing? I am taking the life that I live and I'm assigning the authority of that life to Him. The way I like to put it is, how many of you have a landlord? Somebody owns the building you live in. You know what? They let you live there. You pay the rent. You have certain things you're supposed to do, and and you have certain things you're not supposed to do. And if you don't keep up your end of the agreement, guess what the landlord's going to do? They're going to move you out of that apartment, aren't they? And they have every right to because the property belongs to them. Well, God's not going to take away your salvation when you assign your life over to Him. It now belongs to Him. He's your life, Lord. He has the right to tell you what to do and what not to do. We still have that sin nature that rises up against Him. How do we get victory over ourselves? Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. I'm not the one supposed to be doing this. This is why Jesus said, If any man follow me, let him take up his cross, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. I am to die to self. This is what the entire Old Testament tabernacle and all of the daily sacrifices were not a picture of Jesus' sacrifice. They are a picture of the death of ourselves so that God could use us. And so now it says, in the life which I now live, I live by... Now, these next few words are very important. The faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, that little word of, if you look it up in a real dictionary, has an incredible meaning. We might say that uh, a person is of a certain country or a certain city. That means they came from there. We might say uh, the power in the lines that uh, light the lights and run our air conditioners is of Con Edison because that's where it comes from. Well, faith does not come from you. It comes from God. Faith cometh by And hearing by the Word of God. You can't have faith without your Bible. You can't have faith 
without the works of Jesus Christ. Uh, well, we don't have time to chase that rabbit tonight, but our faith is an objective faith. It's in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The life which I now live, I'm supposed to live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I do not frustrate the grace of God. I live in the grace of God by admitting that it's only by His grace and the finished work of Christ that I can have salvation. And all God's people said, you see, if I could get salvation by doing things and keeping the law, then Jesus didn't need to die. But no one can save themselves by what they do. Jesus came and never once broke God's law. He was not under. He was the only innocent person that ever lived on earth. He died in our place so that we could meet the penalty of the law. And now we're free from the law so that we can serve God with the life that is given to us through the faith that belongs to Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? God does not need evil to be good. God is good. Where does evil come in? Simply this. If there were no choice, if there were no ability to do evil, there would be no choice. God allowed us to make that choice so that he could redeem us. So that those who are saved are not some result of a cosmic bingo game. That's how I sarcastically refer to the Calvinist. That those who are saved are not some little trick that God played. They made a choice. Just like they chose to sin, they chose to put their faith in God. At that moment, they were crucified. Their old life was paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ. But it's not the end of life, it's the beginning. That's why it's called being born again. But the life that I'm supposed to live as a born-again Christian, as a saved individual, is supposed to have its source in the faith of the Son of God because He loved me. It was His love that motivated Him to give Himself to pay the price for my sins and we go on to 1 John and other passages in our Bible. It says, we love Him because He first loved us. And a phrase that I use often, I, I wish I could figure a better way of saying it. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. That, Paul's saying He didn't save us because we were Jews. He saved us because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. Just like He's saving the Gentiles in this church that put their faith in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's why Paul was rebuking Peter. Because Peter was allowing his culture and his tradition to interfere with other people understanding the love and the grace of God. That's why Peter was rebuked. And Paul is going to now take that same rebuke that he leveled at Peter, and he's going to turn the barrel and aim it directly at the Galatians and say, you're doing the same dumb thing. 
The word dumb is in the original language. No, it's not. But foolish people do dumb things, don't they? And Paul's going to go on to explain where the law comes in. We are not of those who throw away the law and disregard the law as uh, a, a crazy, outdated document. No, there, there is a place for the law. And, and Paul's going to explain to us what the law is about and how we're to use it in our lives. It's important. We don't throw away the law. But for the Christian, I've met the penalty of the law in Jesus Christ. So now I'm free from the law. I'm dead. Legally, I'm dead. But I'm still talking. Why? Because I'm supposed to live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we ask that you would help us, that you would open our eyes to see how subtle this blasphemous message of making God equal with evil is just so predominant in our society today. Lord, let us be thankful that you don't need evil to work. But you did give us a real choice and we blew it. We made the wrong choice. Yet, Lord, you've offered salvation to whosoever will. And we ask you, Lord, to help us understand a little bit more how great that salvation is. How that there's nothing that we can do or could be done by any human being to deserve one bit of God's grace. Lord, let us lift up God's grace to the level that it ought to be. The supreme love of the supreme God. For sinners such as I. Lord, help us to love you. And to live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us, gave himself for us. Before we finish that prayer, if you need to just slip out of your seat, the altar is open.